Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on DSTV's audio bouquet channel 802 and on www.channelafrica.co.za. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa and Tabiso Lohoko. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Presumptive Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden expected to name his running mate this week. A Tanzanian government on Friday banned flights from Kenya after its citizens were excluded from flying into Kenya. And in economics news, survey results reveal that almost 300 private sector operating businesses in Namibia had to reduce their workforce during the 2019-2020 financial period. But first up the news with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Good morning. Zimbabwe's governing ZANU-PF party is lashed out at anti-government protests which led to the arrests of some prominent figures in the country this past week. There's been widespread criticism of the government for arrests and reports of alleged torture. The government claims that those arrested were inciting violence and the forceful removal of the government. ZANU-PF spokesperson in South Africa, Kennedy Mandaza, says any other government would have reacted in the same manner. Activists in the form of some of them who are media personalities coming on board to say that the government must fall. People were being incited to violently remove a government. Where there are abductions, where there is torture, these issues need to be dealt with with the, with, with the police. And we have a very professional police force. It is not the ZANU-PF that arrests people. It is the police that does so. The, the onus now is on those that have been arrested to prove Reports from Northern Cameroon say suspected fighters from Boko Haram have killed 15 people and wounded six others in a grenade attack. Local sources say the attack has targeted a camp for displaced people. The BBC's Chris Walker reports. Quoting security sources and a local official, Reuters stated that the unidentified assailant threw a grenade into a group of people inside an IDP camp in Mozogo near the border with Nigeria and the far north region. A security official who reportedly confirmed the attack disclosed that two persons who were wounded in the attack later died. Boko Haram group has been fighting for a decade to carve out caliphate based in Nigeria. The governor of Borno State in northeast Nigeria, Babagana Umaru Zulum, has suggested elements within the country's security are undermining government's efforts to defeat the militant group Boko Haram. He was speaking a day after his convoy was forced to flee because of sustained gunfire near Lake Chad. The governor says the sabotage within the system is prolonging the decade-long conflict with the militants. 
South Africa has a cumulative total of 511,485 confirmed coronavirus cases, this after recording 8,195 new cases. The health department says the COVID-19 national death toll has risen to 8,366 after 213 new deaths. The number of recoveries currently stands at 347,227. This translates to a recovery rate of 68%. Meanwhile, a senior researcher at the Council for Scientific and Industrial Research, Ridwan Suleiman, says the doubling rate of COVID-19-related deaths in South Africa is starting to slow down. The doubling rate is the number of days it takes for COVID-19 deaths to double. Suleiman says the death rate is following the same trend as the doubling rate of coronavirus cases, which has also slowed down, reflecting a bend in the pandemic's curve in the country the doubling rate has slowed down to about every four weeks. That's a doubling rate of COVID-19 cases. Um, So that is a positive sign. The number of of deaths are following the same trend as the number of cases. We're starting to see a bit of a slowdown in terms of the doubling rate of deaths. It's slowing down to about every three weeks now. Um, Hopefully, if it continues to follow the trend in cases, this will hopefully continue to slow down as as we go forward. COVID-19 deaths in Iran are reported to be nearly three times higher than the government has admitted. Authorities claim that the death toll is just over 14,000, but official records from a whistleblower indicate that the real figure is almost 42,000. The whistleblower, whose words have been voiced overseas, it's vital to get the truth. Risking my life, I'm sending you the lists of coronavirus infections and deaths in all the hospitals of the country. I urge you to publish these figures as you see fit, so we can save some patients' lives. And finally, South Africa Rugby has cleared Springbok Lock Eben Elizabeth following an internal investigation into an incident in Langabon last year. Elizabeth was accused of physical and racial abuse outside a club in a pub, rather, in the Western Cape town. Just before the 2019 Rugby World Cup, SA Rugby has issued a brief statement saying that an independent investigation was conducted and that the case from their perspective is now closed. Elizabeth admitted to being there, but denied that he was guilty of any sort of abuse. The Human Rights Commissioner, Eva Stoll, has not completed its investigation after the incident was referred to them. That's the news headlines at 7.30 Central African Time. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. Thank you, Anne. It's 7.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Joe Biden, who is challenging Donald Trump for the U.S. presidency, is expected to name his running mate this week. After eight years as President Barack Obama's number two, he knows a thing or two about what it takes to succeed as vice president. If elected, he would become the country's oldest president and he's made it clear that his deputy must be ready to assume the presidency at any time. Kate Fisher reports from Washington. You can barely see the White House any longer from the street. It is obscured by the black metal fences and the posters left over from the Black Lives Matter protests. 
And this very moment in America's history, this moment of racial reckoning, may well inform Joe Biden as he makes his decision about who will be his running mate for November's election. Analysts suggest it is highly likely to be a person of color, an African-American. And Joe Biden himself has already said that it will be a woman. So given that, who are the front runners in this race? Let's do this together. Let's claim our future. Arguably our the favorite is Senator children, Kamala Harris, who ran alongside Joe Biden uh, to try to win the Democratic nomination for president. She dropped out of the race, but she seems to be pretty high on the list, according to most analysts. Uh, one area of concern for her could be that during her time as Attorney General of California, she took some decisions over crime that don't settle well with some members of the Democratic Party. Another, uh, some, another front runner could be Susan Rice, the former ambassador to the United Nations in the Barack Obama administration and also former National Security Advisor. An advantage she has is that she's good friends with Joe Biden and he's already worked worked closely with her. Or Joe Biden may turn to geography to help to inform his decision. Congresswoman Val Demings from the state of Florida, a swing state that Joe Biden really needs to win if he's going to win the presidency. Other names in the fray, Karen Bass, a congresswoman from California who has years of experience and chairs the Congressional Black Caucus. And then Keisha Lance Bottoms, she's the mayor of Atlanta. She doesn't have that much political experience, but she has been an ardent supporter of Joe Biden from the very beginning, and he may well return that loyalty. But the most important thing that Joe Biden is looking for in a running mate is the ability to help him to unseat Donald Trump and to win the keys to the house behind me. Kate Fisher, Washington. The Tanzanian government on Friday banned flights from Kenya after its citizens were excluded from flying into Kenya. In a statement, Hamza Johari, the director general of the Tanzania Civil Aviation Authority, said they would not allow any Kenya Airways flights between Nairobi, Dar es Salaam, Kilimanjaro and Zanzibar, effective from August the 1st, 2020. Already, the Kenyan Transport Cabinet Secretary James Macharia met with his counter from Tanzania and agreed to remove the ban from both countries. Gabriel Zakaria reports from Dar es Salaam. According to a statement from the Director General of the Tanzania Civil Aviation Authority, TCAA, Kenya Airways flights were being banned on a reciprocal basis after Kenya decided against including Tanzania in a list of countries whose passengers would be permitted to enter Kenya when commercial flights resumed on 1st August. Tanzania Aviation Body has noted its inclusion in the list of countries whose people will be allowed to travel into Kenya. Tanzania Civil Aviation Authority Director General Hamza Johari explains. We have taken these measures after I realized they were colleague Kenya went against the reciprocal basis, which states clear that both parties should treat each other equally and follow the laws and the procedures. Earlier, Kenya Civil Aviation Authority informed us about the resume of their flights in Dar es Salaam, 
Kilimanjaro and Zanzibar and we allowed them. But once we learned that our flights have been banned to tax in Kenya, then we opted to revenge back until all protocols sorted out between the duo. This is normal in business and you have always to know that business is a war. And once our neighbor reach at a point to remove the ban to our flights, we will also act the same. It is the Kenyan authority that started to list out our flights and what we did is to respond back until we sit down and discuss our differences. You remember in the last three or four years, Kenyan government banned our tourist transporters to enter Nairobi city and we met and discussed the matters and resume back to normal. So, even this one, it will be solved sooner than later. The ban follows an announcement by Kenyan Transport Cabinet Secretary James Masharia on Thursday on countries cleared to access Kenya's airspace when international flights resume Saturday. Speaking with members of press on Saturday, the Kenyan Transport Cabinet Secretary James Masharia says he had held a virtual meeting with his Tanzania counterpart to address the flight ban. I had an extensive discussion with my counterpart in Tanzania because you recall and some of us, some of you are aware, there was an issue with regard to flights from Tanzania into Kenya. And we wanted to clarify, me and my brother, the Minister for Transport, Ijinia Kamwere of Tanzania, that indeed there is no misunderstanding. Kenya has never banned flights from Tanzania. Kenya has never banned travelers from Tanzania. What we have done is to indicate certain health-related protocols of people arriving from various countries. And this is a protocol which is contained in the community which we gave you on Thursday, and for which we are reviewing in terms of countries which will be coming here and with passengers exempt from quarantine. And so I'd like to confirm we did agree with the Minister for Transport to Tanzania we shall be making this announcement that indeed we've met uh, by virtual uh, meeting this morning and we have agreed on all issues and um, that uh, advisory which was given by Tanzania Civil Aviation Authority uh, yesterday, we believe by the end of the day it will be reversed with regard to the Kenya Airways flights from here to Tanzania. Tanzania was missing in the list of countries allowed which included Uganda, Ethiopia, China, Canada, Japan, Rwanda, South Korea, Zimbabwe, France, Morocco and Namibia. On the last Wednesday, the Kenyan delegation set to attend former Tanzania President Benjamin Mkapa's funeral led by Senate Majority Leader Samuel Pogisio was forced to turn back before getting to Dar es Salaam due to bad weather. Tanzania resumed international flights and cross-border transportation on May 19th after President John Magufuli declared that the country was free of COVID-19. Reporting for Channel Africa in Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, this is Gabriel Zakaria. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Cabinet has decided that all public schools should take a break for the next four weeks. Now, 
This has also been the experience in a number of other countries where schools have opened and have also had to close due to the circumstances that each country has had to confront. This means that schools will be closed from the 27th July and will reopen on the 24th of August. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus, also called COVID-19, for Channel Africa from Planta in Malawi, I am George Mohango. Washing your hands with soap and water or using alcohol-based hand rub kills viruses that may be on your hands. It's 7.16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The General Secretary of the South African Communist Party, Dr. Bladen Zamande, has implored the tripartite alliance to rid itself of corruption or risk the gains of the revolution being unraveled. This as the country is dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. Zamande was speaking at the party's virtual rally as it celebrated 99 years of its existence. He lashed out at what he calls COVIDpreneurs who want to enrich themselves with money from the public coffers. The move comes as ANC leaders are embroiled in an alleged tender scandal with the Gauteng Department of Health. Natasha Piri reports. The fight against corruption topped the agenda at the SACP's 99th anniversary celebrations. Just this week, ANC leaders made headlines for all the wrong reasons, ranging from issues of corruption to the abuse of power. Alliance partners, the ANC and COSATU, denounced acts of corruption within the movement. For its part, the SACP sent a stern warning to the alliance. If it does not self-correct, then this could mark the beginning of the end. Unless we defeat corruption, we will actually bid our revolution goodbye. Therefore, during this 99th anniversary, we are calling upon the alliance to unite and rid itself of corrupt elements. We are also calling upon the law enforcement agencies to act without fear or favor. The Vanguard Party once again reiterated its call for an end to tender systems in the country. We must intensify the struggle to end the tenderization of the state and the corruption that it breeds and tackle its associated tendencies like tenderpreneurs and their COVID-19 manifestation, what some are referring to as COVIDpreneurs. Meanwhile, Dr. Nzimande has labeled the move by Treasury to seek financial assistance from the International Monetary Fund to fight COVID-19 as a grave mistake. He says South Africa should not subject itself to heavy interest rates in the process of repaying the loan to the IMF while the country's economy is not in a good space. Our own Treasury and Reserve Bank have made what we believe as the SACP is a grievous mistake of taking on a dollar-denominated IMF loan, exposing our economy to further suffocation by imperialist interests. In the midst of important discussions within the ANC-led alliance... As everyone denounces the corruption that has bedeviled the ANC-led government, the Young Communist League also weighed in, 
calling for tough action against those found with their hands in the cookie jar. Meanwhile, the ANC will brief the media on the outcomes of its NEC meeting this coming week. That report by Natasha Piri. Members of Parliament's Police Oversight Committee have raised concerns over the ever-increasing murder rate in the country. Police Minister Begi Kele presented before the committee crime statistics for the period of the 1st of April 2019 to the end of March this year. The statistics show that the murder rate has increased by 303, resulting in more than 21,000 murders during the period under review. Zaline Merrington reports. Members of the committee say the increase in the murder rate, however small, is still a cause for concern. The chairperson of the committee, Tina Jumat Patterson, says it would be impossible to halve the murder rate as set out in the police's 10-year plan. Violent crimes like murder and sexual offences have increased over a three-year period. Um, the small increases add up to a bigger increase. So. How are we going to reduce violent crime by 50% over the next nine years if the murder rate keeps on going up? The Freedom Front Plus leader, Peter Grunewald, says the country is clearly becoming more violent. If we look at the murder rate, there was an increase of 1,4%. There was also an increase in sexual offences and also an increase in farm murders. If you look further into the murder rate, then we will find that the last three years there was an increase of 4,8%. But if we look at the last 10 years, there was an increase of 34,17% in murders in South Africa. Police Minister Beke Kele explained that the year-on-year increases are smaller every year. It, 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 it has been some form of a stabilization, some form of... Uh, as you could see, the figures of murder We've, were from 1,000, went to half of a 1,000, went to half of, of a half. If you look at Nyanga, uh, Chaperson, Nyanga police station has never been green. Yes, has moved from number one, is number four, is green. So, which means there are stabilization even on those stations that are up there. With sexual crime showing an increase of more than 800 cases during the reporting period, MPs such as Sheikh Imam from the NFP, Jackie Mofuking from the ANC and Zandile Majosi from the IFP expressed concern. Twelve women are raped every day in, and 14 are sexually assaulted in South Africa. We find that there are weaknesses in the FCS unit. They are not acting optimally or, or in, 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 and being able to deal with the challenges that we have for you know, in terms of sexual violence or gender-based violence in South Africa. Issues of rape, for me, it, th there's an increase and one will want to say, what is this? What are we doing? Can we get a registry in the police uh, stations where the protection order, if it's registered, then we know that how many have been registered so that you are able to track also on those protection orders, how many of those people who were reported have committed that crime that was reported at that time? 
That report by Zaline Merrington. It's 7.23 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. With COVID-19 and the global spotlight, medical experts say the importance of vaccination has never been greater. South African parents have been urged not to leave children vulnerable to disease and let the pandemic put their lives further at risk. The National Institute for Communicable Diseases has declared immunization an essential health service, which is critical for preventing life-threatening infectious diseases. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to Dr. Nasiha Sufi, medical head at Sanofi Pasteur Vaccines in South Africa. So considering the current context of the COVID-19 pandemic, our healthcare infrastructure are currently under immense There is absolutely no capacity to entertain vaccine-preventable diseases. And so it's incredibly important at this stage more than ever that everyone gets their vaccines, are fully updated with regards to their immunization schedules, ensure that their infants, their children are fully vaccinated. Because we are trying to prevent the situation where we have an outbreak of a disease is easily prevented using vaccination superimposed on the back of the COVID-19 pandemic. That would surely cripple our healthcare infrastructure as it stands currently. Doctor, have we seen a low immunization coverage in some areas since uh, the start of the COVID-19 pandemic? We absolutely have. So since the start of the lockdown, within a few weeks, we already started to see a 26% decline in immunization, especially the primary schedule for babies. We expect the situation to worsen over time. And a number of reasons have been attributed to this. Um, the main reason being that mums uh, are very fearful of taking themselves and their children to, to health facilities because in their mind, they perceive healthcare facilities as hotspots where they expect COVID-19 cases to congregate in order to get care. And so they feel by taking their children into these healthcare facilities, they are exposing themselves as well as their vulnerable babies to the virus. Additionally, we're having the uh, challenge of healthcare workers who are testing positive for COVID-19, resulting in resources uh, being diminished and also some of these clinics being closed down. So all of these issues together with additional factors have contributed to a decline in immunization rates. Now, what are some of the important uh, vaccines that people need to get and where can they get uh, vaccinated? So with regards to very young babies, I strongly recommend that moms and healthcare professionals uh, follow closely the vaccination schedule, uh, which should have been given to the mom uh, when the child was born. So it may be in the form of a road to health chart, or it could be the pediatric management group vaccination schedule, which clearly guide the mom as well as the healthcare provider as to which vaccine needs to be given when. And this guides the the parent, the, the healthcare provider, up until the child is about you know, 18 months, two years of age. Additionally, if not further, um, additionally, what I would recommend for older children, adolescents, adults, and also the elderly population, uh, we are not very good on stressing the importance of vaccination for adults and the elderly. So I strongly recommend that you trigger that conversation with your physician. Uh, for instance, if you're a 70 year old who has not received the vaccine uh, and since he's been five years of age, and so for instance, if you're 70, the last vaccine you received, uh, you were five, and so now you need some guidance in terms of what vaccines yes. you can have. That 
that conversation, show actively with your physician. And you can also ascertain as to where those vaccines may be administered as well. Mm. Now, Doctor, are there some guidelines in place in both uh, public and private health facilities to care for patients right now without exposing them uh, to the risk of um, COVID-19 infections? Very good question. So currently we do have the WHO guidelines that have been published. Uh, These have been further developed by the National Institute of Communicable Diseases. So we also have now the NICD guidelines uh, to assist healthcare providers cross-nationally in terms of how they are meant to continue with immunization under the current context. So clear guidance in terms of infection control, Mm. social distancing, uh, which vaccines need to be prioritized and how. Now, lastly, Doctor, what will be the implications of falling to or failing rather to continue uh, with immunization services during uh, this uh, period? It will result in a national disaster if we continue to abstain from immunization out of fear for COVID-19. There will be a resurgence, a comeback of many diseases which we have managed to control over the years. It will create the perfect premise for a re-emergence of whooping cough measles, diphtheria, and God forbid polio. That was Dr. Nasiha Sufi, medical head at Sanofi Pasture Vaccines in South Africa, speaking to Teddy Sibia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. What we want to achieve is a healthy and vibrant economy, which can ensure full employment, to our people. The government concurs with the views of the Black Economic Empowerment Council report that it is now necessary to make our policies on Black Economic Empowerment more explicit. Last May, I asked constituencies at NETLEC to discuss youth employment incentives. I'm pleased that discussions have been concluded and that agreement has been reached on key principles. We are on an ambitious drive to industrialize, to attract investment, and to create more jobs for the youth of our country. They don't have jobs. Tried looking for a job for a year and a half now. The challenges were periods and the, the level of education which I have. Channel Africa. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on internet and satellite from an African perspective. Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandaluni Nzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 7.30 Central African time and our headlines up next with Anne Musa. SABC News. Independent and impartial. From an African perspective. perspective. 
Good morning, I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, Zimbabwe's governing ZANU-PF party has lashed out at anti-government protests which led to the arrests of some prominent figures in the country this past week. Reports from northern Cameroon say suspected fighters from Boko Haram have killed 15 people and wounded six others in a grenade attack. And South Africa has a cumulative total of 511,485 confirmed coronavirus cases. Those are the stories making headlines. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It is 7.31 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. The South African sentenced and awaiting trial prisoners organization is threatening to take Justice and Correctional Services Minister Ronald Lamula to court for violation of human rights over the delay in the release of 19,000 prisoners. In May, President Sil Ramaphosa announced that 19,000 prisoners were set to be freed in a bid to control the spread of COVID-19 in prisons, but the organization claims only a handful has been released. However, the correctional department has refuted the claims. Pumzilim Langeni reports. Sasapot claims that thousands of critically ill prisoners, mothers with babies, and those who have met the conditions of the Correctional Services Release Program are still languishing behind bars without any explanation from the department. The organization is calling for the release of prisoners with chronic illnesses, those over the age of 60, and those facing high risks due to the rising COVID-19 fatalities. Chairperson Pindi Lizweni. We have decided and come to the conclusion that we are now going to take the minister back to court. He, he defied the, the, the constitutional right of the, the, the inmates. Human rights of these inmates have really been violated. We want to know them why the minister doesn't want to come to the party and to speak about why he doesn't release these categories of people. Every day, two, three people are dying in prison. The steps that they are giving to the media is incorrect. It's totally incorrect. Zweni says the delay in the release of these prisoners will result in more prison breaks. A week before the outbreak of the inmates, the awaiting trial inmates at Marmersbury Correctional Centre, I was informed of that planned escape. I actually said to the inmates, no guys, I warned the office of the National Committee. It's going to happen at all the, the centres. Even the sentence inmates are now going to try and escape because they fear for their lives. Three people sleeping on one bed. There's no social distancing. There's no food in prison. There's no PPE clothing in prison. The department has refuted these allegations. Spokesperson Crispin Peary has accused Sasapo of misleading the nation with their unfounded allegations. To date, of the 19,000 offenders which have been earmarked for release, approximately 7,000 have been released by correctional facility officials and parole board. And the delay is occasioned by the fact that COVID-19 is actually everywhere in our society. So even parole board members themselves are affected by COVID-19. And and so COVID-19 has caused such a major disruption in the way we conduct um, our jobs and in the way that we conduct the protocols that it has been difficult for them to do this quite expeditiously. But the work is still ongoing. Piri is also refuting claims that the department is concealing the actual number of COVID-19 deaths in prisons. 
day, I, uh, the ministry and the department approve a statement that goes out to the public, which informs the public about the daily statistics of COVID-19. The minister appears before parliament, where he tables reports to parliament and explains to our communities through accountability processes in parliament what is the state of COVID-19 in our facilities, what are we doing with regards to the COVID-19 special parole dispensation. That report by Pumzilim Langeni. South Africa's Gauteng Health Department says 167 companies have received tenders for COVID-19 work to date. This was revealed on Tuesday when the department delivered a presentation to the Health Portfolio Committee in the provincial legislature. The presentation included matters such as staff reprioritization, field hospitals equipment and the status of a COVID-19 outbreak in the province. These revelations come as a class of alleged impropriety hangs over the department. Meanwhile, in March this year, Corruption Watch released its annual corruption report titled The Writing is on the Wall, which shows how throughout 2019, the public continued to expose corrupt individuals intent on abusing their power and looting public resources in key sectors. For more on this, Channel Africa spoke to researcher at Corruption Watch, Melusi Ngala. The most recent report, in fact, that we have written has got to do with the health sector. Um, it looks at reports of corruption that the organization has received between 2012 and the end of 2019. It's about 700 reports of corruption, whistleblower accounts, people, ordinary people like yourself, the listeners out there, um, the elderly women, children who come to Corruption Watch as a last resort because of what they are experiencing when it comes to the health sector. The health sector is not as effective and we say it's because of corruption. The main issues that were highlighted in the report uh, pertain to employment corruption, that's about 39%, procurement corruption, 22%, and the misappropriation of uh, resources comes in at 16%. These are the most prevalent forms of corruption according to this whistleblower account. Now, which sector would you say is mostly affected by corruption and what are the main uh, reasons for this? As the report indicates, you know, the corruption is quite prevalent throughout the country. Um, it's, um, it's based on the various forms of corruption, if it's employment corruption or procurement corruption or misappropriation of funds and provinces leading in those. For example, um, Limpopo province will lead in the procurement of uh, pro- procurement corruption, whilst Northern Cape will lead in employment corruption. So these are the kind of things that we are looking um, that that's that happening in the report, and it's all directed at the health sector. Melusi, what's your view regarding the latest uh, PPE tender scandal in the Gauteng Health uh, Department? Well, you know, we... Um, when you look at how whistleblowers have come to us and highlighted that, you know, for example, when we talk about procurement corruption, we're talking about inflation of prices or companies paying, paying kickbacks to officials. You know, it's quite troubling to find that we have so many companies that are implicated in, in corruption. And it, it shows that we haven't learned uh, from previous experiences. We, we talk the talk, but we don't walk the walk when it comes to corruption. We don't hold people accountable. And so it's important that we, we ask law enforcement to, to do their job. Now, do you think perhaps uh, the step by the African National Congress to put the other two members, namely MEC Bandile Masugu and MMC Loiso Masugu on special leave was appropriate? Uh, um, it's part of the process. It's due process. Um, such 
steps can always be welcome. It sets the right tone. But we, uh, South Africans will beg to differ and tell you that we've become accustomed to that. This is how um, politicians will obfuscate and avoid dealing with the matter. What people are ultimately looking for is prosecution to see people actually held accountable yes. for these various forms of corruption, wherever corruption manifests. So as much as we encourage um, that, you know, this is a form of responsibility, we need the next step to actually kick in. Do you believe that the process uh, that the Integrity Committee w- will undergo will be a fair and uh, tr- transparent one? Um, we don't, well, we can always hope that processes that are within law that will be, that due process will be followed and correct processes will be followed by the officials involved and that, you know, if people need to be vindicated, cleared, in other words, men cleared, then that so be the case, then that should be so. But if people are found guilty, then due process needs to be followed. But we also need to bear in mind that it's it's unfortunate that we're still talking about corruption, characterizing it as, you know, it was a normal event that occurred and we need to just follow due process. Because in any event, we're not supposed to be talking about, um, for example, the uh, a spokesperson in the presidency, yes. family members actually having such close proximity to power getting tender deals, you know. Already that's a problem in itself. Whether the, pro- the deal was legitimate or not, we shouldn't look at it that way. We should be looking at it during these times, during a time when we need to set the right tone in the country and corruption is so rife. We need to be telling people that, you know, this is how, this is the extent to which we, we take corruption seriously. So we can't just be accepting that people who are that close to power can get tenders as well. That was Melusi Ngala, researcher at Corruption Watch, speaking to Teddy Sibia. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. There's nothing good about alcohol. Alcohol is destructive. Alcohol destroys families. Alcohol destroys life. Alcohol contributes to unprotected sex and spreading of diseases. Alcohol contributes to domestic violence, abuse of children and women. Channel Africa. For your latest update on the novel coronavirus or COVID-19, for Channel Africa, I'm Arthur Skopo in Lusaka, Zambia. If you develop fever, cough and difficulty breathing, seek medical advice promptly as this may be due to a respiratory infection or other serious condition. It's 7.41 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Today we bring you a story that we rarely cover from Kenya. The story revolves around human trafficking also known as modern day slavery. A researcher for an international organization known in short as INET has singled out Kenya as one of the countries where human trafficking is prevalent. James Shimangula reports. Human trafficking is the act or process of persuading someone forcefully to do something that they do not want to do. Human trafficking is a crime against the person because of the violation of the victim's right of movement through coercion, 
and because of their commercial exploitation. To put it in a simple language, human trafficking is the trade in people, especially women and children, and it does not necessarily involve the movement of the person from one place to another. Trafficked people are held against their will through acts of coercion and forced to work for and provide services to the trafficker or others. With that general background on human trafficking in mind, let us now turn to human trafficking in the East African nation of Kenya. Mohamed Daga is a researcher for an international organization known in short as ENACT. ENACT has an organized crime program. Daga tells us the extent to which human trafficking has reached in Kenya. Human trafficking is prevalent in the East African region. However, one of the most prevalent form of transnational human trafficking crime in Kenya and possibly in the East African region is that of labor exportation to the Middle East. Trafficking markets are driven by well-connected security, business and political elites with links to the continental and international trafficking economy. Mohamed Dagad discloses the driving force behind human trafficking. When we look at the criminality of this network, it shows that it is driven by both foreign and local networks. These networks are distinct, but also work cooperatively to facilitate the trafficking. Cases are starting to show a shift in the links of these local trafficking value chains with evidence that the trafficking is increasingly being carried out by East Africans. According to some victims that we talked to recently, they were received in the Middle Eastern countries by what they described as familiar faces. The experiences of trafficked victims has been that of exploitation in the workplace and sexual violations common. Daga also discloses what employed victims of human trafficking that told him during his research. Most victims said their employers constantly reminded them that they had bought them for a particular amount and they would have to refund the employer before being released from their contracts. In this kind of exploitation and maltreatment, most of the trafficked victims are unaware of their legal rights, an indication that legislation fails to mitigate vulnerability to exploitation. Mohamed Daga defines tersely what human trafficking is all about. Trafficking should be regarded as a transnational organized crime with a focus on the victim. The question that comes to mind is why human traffickers are able to operate with ease in Kenya. Mohamed Daga again. Traffickers are able to operate here in Kenya because of two gaps legal protection and the socio-economic challenges make them vulnerable to trafficking networks thus a robust regulatory framework is needed and this can include having in place a foreign employment policy having protective bilateral agreements with the middle east countries addressing the issue as a human trafficking crime and also regulating employment agencies that was Mohamed Daga, researcher for an international organization known in short as ENACT. The organization, which has an organized crime program, is funded by the European Union and implemented by the Institute for Security Studies, in short ISS, International Criminal Police Organization, commonly known as Interpol, an international organization that facilitates worldwide police cooperation and crime control and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
The benefits of breastfeeding far outweigh the risk of possible transmission of COVID-19 from an infected mother to the newborn. This important message is highlighted as the world this week observes Breastfeeding Week, which seeks to raise awareness about the benefits of exclusively breastfeeding for the initial six months of a child's life. As cases of the coronavirus continue to surge, pregnant women and nursing mums are worried about the impact of the virus not only on their health, but also on newborn babies. Jane Rabutata reports. World Breastfeeding Week is celebrated annually during the first week of August in over 120 countries around the world. The campaign this year falls during a very difficult period as the globe battles the COVID-19 pandemic, which has raised anxiety among pregnant women. Health experts, however, still advocate for breastfeeding, even if nursing mothers contract the virus. Dr. Susan Lowe is a medical practitioner at the National Health Laboratory Service in South Africa. Breastfeeding is still advocated because the benefits of breastfeeding still far outweighs the risk of possible transmission to the newborn from the mother to the baby. If the mother is symptomatic, coughing, sneezing, confirmed COVID, let her wear a mask. But the benefits of breastfeeding still far outweighs the risk of transmission of COVID to the baby. And there have been isolated cases that have been documented in the medical literature of severe COVID in babies. But children, again, are protected against severe COVID for various reasons. And the benefits of breastfeeding is so far outweighs the risk that it's still being advocated by reputable organizations such as the World Health Organization. Amanda Chikara is a pregnant woman who looks forward to breastfeeding. I find comfort in reading, you know, um, about books and all of that stuff that tell me that I can still breastfeed even if I do contact the virus because your body builds antibodies that protect the baby from COVID-19. Also, the virus doesn't seem to have that much of an effect on children, but rather the older you get and the elderly seem to be more impacted. World Breastfeeding Week was first organized by the World Alliance for Breastfeeding Action in collaboration with the World Health Body, WHO, and the UN Child Agency, UNICEF, in 1992. The theme of this year's commemoration is support breastfeeding for a healthier planet. In line with this theme, WHO and UNICEF are calling on governments to protect and promote women's access to skilled breastfeeding counseling, a critical component of breastfeeding support. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. Our economics update up next with Tabiso Luhoku. Thanks, Lulu, and good morning. The South African Communist Party General Secretary Bladen Zimande says that there are alternatives to go for financial help other than the International Monetary Fund even during the coronavirus pandemic. 
He was speaking virtually to mark the 99th anniversary of the SACP. The IMF has given South Africa around 4.3 million US dollars in COVID-19 assistance at what's believed to be a favorable interest rate. The loan does not come with requirements for structural change to the economy, as is the case with other debt relief from the IMF. But Nzimande says South Africa should be looking elsewhere to cope with the financial devastation that the pandemic has caused. We have said as the SACP and would like to repeat, it is very important that priority is given to the mobilization of trillions of friends of our own domestic resources before we consider foreign assistance or foreign loans. Economist Azar Jameen has backed the South African government's decision to seek financial assistance from the International Monetary Fund IMF to mitigate the impact of the coronavirus pandemic. There have been mixed reactions to the IMF loan, the recent being the SACP describing the move as a grievous mistake. Jameen says that the country would otherwise need to borrow money from capital markets at higher interest rates of between 8 to 11%. He says that the IMF loan has the best possible offer with low interest rates. The beauty about the IMF loan is that it gives us a little bit of a break on 70 billion rand out of the 775 billion rand that we have to borrow this year. In other words, for about 10% of our debt that we have to borrow, uh, we're getting at 1.1%. By going to the IMF and getting a loan at 1.1% per annum instead of 8 to 10% per annum, we will effectively be saving uh, around 8 to 9 billion rand of government spending every year that would otherwise have had to go on servicing debt. The Tripartite Council of Ministers of three regional economic communities in the eastern and southern Africa has approved new harmonized trade and transport facilitation guidelines. The tripartite guidelines for the movement of persons, goods and services across the tripartite region during a COVID-19 pandemic consolidates those developed earlier by common market for Eastern and Southern Africa, the East African community and the Southern African development community into one. The African Development Bank has approved grants worth about 41.16 million US dollars to Djibouti to bolster the national budget in support of government efforts to mitigate national and regional impacts of the COVID-19 pandemic. The funding will take the form of an African Development Fund grant of 4.12 million and a 37.04 million US dollar grant from the bank's regional operations envelope. The bank is providing the funding under its COVID-19 response facility. Kenya Airways has resumed international flights on Saturday, heading to about 30 destinations for the first time since the routes were suspended in March due to the coronavirus. The carrier in which Air France KLM holds a small stake resumed domestic flights in mid-July after the government declared local air travel. The airline's chief executive officer, Alan Kilavuka, says for the rest of the year, the airline expected demand to remain below 50% of capacity, but it would increase flight frequencies depending on demand. 
The US dollar is trading at a 385.96 Nigerian Nara, 11.35 Botswana Pula, 106.78 Kenyan Shilling, and 18.23 Zambian Kwacha. In BRICS currencies, Brazil, 1 US dollar trades, 5 real 22 Russia, 74 rubles 30 India, 74 rupees 66 China, 6 yuan 97, and in South Africa, 17 rand 3. The US dollar is also trading at 76 pence to the British pound and at 84 cents to the euro. Gold $1,968, platinum $901 pounds, Brent crude $43.12 a barrel. From an African perspective, this is your favorite channel. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. That wraps up Africa, rise and shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Luanda Maume, technical producer Fiso Mashejo, and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.co.za, WhatsApp on plus 277-6300-3327. You can also tweet us at Channel Africa 1. Now taking us to the top of the hour for the news is Umama Vice Java. 